Testament reading is from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are, uh, this evening, as we come back in 2024, we are full on moving toward our 20th anniversary celebration. And uh, we're celebrating 20 years of God's faithfulness, and we're doing this by way of a series, partly called Remembering Forward, right? You find this in the scripture all the time, remembering to move us ahead in faith. And uh, I told uh, Dr. Red, Scott Red, this will be the last time I introduce you, probably. But, you know, uh, one of the blessings and the things that we've been really excited about is uh, this past year, Dr. Red has joined us as resident theologian and really has been, uh, he and his family, that keep filling more and more pews. We love it. Uh, it. Really have just been in our midst and been present ministering to us. Uh, but I have asked uh, Scott to kick off this series, not because I was trying to get another week off, but I was, you know, I was faithfully doing research over the break, uh, faithfully doing research, and, you know, I was like, I finally, I was like, I wish I could find an article that was just like a great overview of this theme of remembrance in Scripture. And, on, you know, so I'm doing all my looking around, looking around, and then I'm conferring with Mike and Scott, and Scott just very humbly says, by the way, this is a little something I've written, and I was like, that's it! That's the article I was looking for the whole time. And then I read it, and I said, you have to come and preach this to kick us off, because it's such a great overview of this idea of remembrance. So, with that... Might be my last introduction of you. We're so glad you're here, brother. Come on up and uh, preach for us. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. It is a joy to be with you. We've been talking all fall about placemaking. It's good to be back in this place. It's good to be back in our place, um, worshiping together. And um, I'm honored to be able to open up this series on remembering. It's called Remembering Forward is the series. So we're, we're thinking about remembering, but not just for the sake of nostalgia, right? Not, not just for the sake of sentimentality. Um, we're not just repristinating the past, but it's remembering for the purpose of moving forward. Uh, this um, sermon will be kind of an introduction to the whole series, the text that we've read this morning, this evening, excuse me, from 2 Timothy 3 and from Psalm 78 are examples of the kind of remembering that we're going to be meditating on over the course of the spring. 
One is from uh, the Israelite worship song of Psalm 78, a song that, notice, is, is all about remembering what the Lord has done. You see, the Israelites saw themselves as a people in time, and they recognized that the Lord had done things, and sometimes they would have worship songs that just listed out the things that the Lord has done. I actually encourage you to read the rest of Psalm 78 over the course of this week. And even if you're, if you're given to such artistic endeavors, think about writing your own Psalm 78, where in, in little pithy poetic lines, you recite what the Lord has done and use them as a model. Look what they've pointed to and then think about what the Lord has, point, has done for you. And, and how would you write such a psalm of remembrance remembering what the Lord has done. And then, then we read earlier 2 Timothy 3, which is really focusing on uh, this wonderful passage that if you're coming out of sort of this tradition that we call the Reformed tradition, it's a passage that we cite all the time to talk about the Word of God, how it's, it's theopneustos, it's God-inspired, it's useful for all of these things. Notice it's not just for theology, it's for every good work, right? Equipping you for every good work. And yet I think we often miss the context of this passage which is Paul telling young Timothy, remember what your mother taught you? Remember what you learned on your grandmother's knee? The word of the Lord? Remember that. It's breathed out by God. You heard it spoken out from your mother and your grandmother. It's breathed out by God for every good work. Remember it. Reflect on it. Meditate on it. See, this is a sermon about memory. And it's to start this season of reflecting on memory. So as we do that, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we do lift up to you this time of reflection, of collective memory, of remembering. Dear Lord, I pray that as we do, that you would, you would give us minds that can conceive of what you have done and that you give us hearts that, that leap when we reflect on what you have done. That you give us mouths like Paul and like the psalmist who can tell and proclaim the things that you have done. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, memory of the past whether it's corporate or individual, can wield a powerful influence in the life of the individual or in the life of the church. Not only in the way that people engage with the present, but also how they think about the future. And that's why we're calling this sermon series Remembering Forward, Remembering the Future. Memory is quite powerful. As a matter of fact, it's not surprising that for many of us and in many times, we spend a lot of energy trying not to remember. We try not to remember our struggles. We try not to remember the pain, the trauma, the hurt, the wounds, the failures of our past. We spend a lot of time often trying not to remember those things in our autobiographies that we would rather not think about because we recognize that memory isn't just a content of ideas, that it has a power, it's formative in the way that we live. At other times, memory can provide deep encouragement about where we've been, about the experiences and the relationships that have formed us and made us who we are today. Uh, we can meditate sometimes on those things in the past and, and, and be, find strength in them and, and find encouragement. Look at how far I've come. 
or sometimes we can think about the past in a way that's not actually true. That's the power of nostalgia, isn't it? Sentimentality. It's a remembrance of a past that never really existed in the first place. You see, memory is powerful. The English writer George Orwell had this saying, and he used it to talk kind of cynically about how people use memory cynically. And he'd say, people who can control the present control the past. And if you can control the past, what happens? You can control the future. Because he recognized that memory is formative for the future. You see, in Scripture, memory has a similarly formative power. The Bible depicts believers being formed by their memory and their response to what they remember about God, what they remember about their divine creator and their redeemer, and what they remember about his holy character and how he's revealed it to them. As a result, the whole of redemptive history rather, is, is kind of an exercise in collective memory. People of God are called to remember him and his works. And for his part, God remembers his people too in the promises that he's made to them and that he uses that remembering of them to draw them closer to him. So I want to talk about three aspects of remembering this morning. I want to talk about remembering the covenants. I want to talk about remembering the apostolic faith. And I want to talk about remembering the future at the end you want to kind of put this in terms of the verses that we've just read, remembering the covenants is what's happening in, in Psalm 78. They're remembering what the Lord has done covenantally for them, and they're finding encouragement in that. When we talk about remembering the apostolic faith, we're doing what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. That is to remember the teachings that have been handed down to him, Scripture, but not just Scripture handed to him, Scripture handed to him by apostles who are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we want to touch on this idea of then remembering the future. So let's start with remembering the covenants. Well, faithful memory, faithful memory is covenant memory. In God's good pleasure, he chose to relate to humanity in this very special way through this binding relationship that he binds himself to humanity, uh, to us, through this relationship that he calls the covenant. It's a relationship where he says, remember what I've done, and as a result of what I've done, you can be encouraged of what I will do, and we will be bound together in this special way. As a result, memory becomes a theme that is gone back to over and over again in Scripture and developed all the way up to the very end of Revelation. There's still memory taking place. But we find it right away in the garden. Faithful memory becomes a major theme, right? Right away in the garden, if you remember that story where the serpent comes to meet Eve, and he meets her in the garden, and he, and he wants to strike at the heart of the relationship between God and humanity. And how does he do it? He does it by tapping into memory. What does he say? He goes, did God actually say? Do you remember what God said? Can you recall what he said? Of course, he's talking about the tree. And what had God said? God said, you can enjoy everything I've made for you. Only one thing, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil. For in that day, you will surely die. And Satan said, wait, what did he say again about if you eat the fruit? Do you remember Eve? 
It's interesting, too, that she does say, don't eat of the tree or even touch its fruit. And some, some commentators have said, see, she's misremembering. She's adding to the law. She's making it more difficult, more complex. And that's possible. It might just be that she's saying, no, we're not supposed to go anywhere near that thing. Okay? We're not sure what's going on, but what we do know is that she's not convinced of what she's been told. Because as soon as she sees it, she says, oh, it's going to make me wise. Look, it looks tasty. I think I'm going to try it. And Adam gives in to the same temptation. What do we see? We see that this question that the serpent brings is really a question about memory. Do you remember? Are you convinced of it? Are you applying it in your life? You see, in other words, memory or lack thereof is operative in the fall of humanity. Now, memory will also play an important role throughout the redemption of humanity. As a matter of fact, God will remember things. He will remember Noah when Noah's in the flood and the, and the earth is covered with water and Noah's out there in his little ark with his family, the last of humanity to exist. And it says, but God remembered When Abraham was brought into the land, his family member, Lot, finds himself in a very dangerous situation. He seems lost. It seems like all is lost and his family will be wiped out. But then it says the Lord remembers, Genesis 19.29, he remembers Lot because of Abraham. And he goes and he saves Lot out of the situation. He remembers Rachel when she's barren and not giving birth, and it says the Lord remembered Rachel and the promises that he'd made to the covenant people and he gave her a child. Genesis 30, 22. As a matter of fact, the preeminent act of salvation, if you want to go back and say, where do we find salvation in the Old Testament? It's in the Exodus event when they're taken out of slavery in Egypt and they're given the promised land. And that whole event is predicated on the fact that God hears the cries of his people and he remembers his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God says in this binding covenant relationship, you're to remember me. And guess what? I'll remember you. I will remember you. After their deliverance, the Israelites are called to respond to the Lord with a wholehearted love they called to respond to the Lord in a way that honors him even in the work week. And, and in Exodus 20, when they get this, the rules about Sabbath, where the Lord says, I'm going to give you rest, and rest is going, to, is going to be one of the ways you show the world that you follow me. He says, and the reason why you're doing it is because you remember that I was the one who created this earth in six days and then rested on the seventh. You remember creation, and that affects the way that you live today, says Exodus 20. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy 5, when we get the Ten Commandments again, and we get the Sabbath commandment, the Lord says, I'm going to give you rest. Don't forget about it. This time, your rest is a remembrance of the fact that you were in slavery in Egypt, and I gave you rest. You'll take Sabbath now, because I'm a God of redemption and freedom. I would actually argue that Moses in doing that is creating that one of, creating this idea that one of the foundations, as a friend of mine said to me this morning, one of the foundations of social justice in the Bible is the Sabbath commandment. You see, when you were in Egypt, it was an unjust situation and they did not give you rest. But because you are now made free by the God of your redemption in Exodus, you too are to be people who give rest. That there's at least one day of the week you don't work for anybody but me. 
and you rest. You see, Sabbath, what we're doing here on Sunday morning is an afternoon and evening is a remembrance that our God created the heavens and the earth and that our God has given us rest. Such redemptive memory is actually encoded in the biblical covenants themselves. Every biblical covenant, like the other ancient Near Eastern covenants that we find through archaeology, begins with this memory of God's or the king's benevolence. It starts with this memory of what the Lord has done before. Look at the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 1 through 4, the first four chapters, and Deuteronomy is just one big covenant book. The first four chapters is a remembrance of, of what God has done for Israel, even though Israel didn't deserve it. What happens? You get to the end of Deuteronomy 1 through 4, and those of you who know Deuteronomy know that we then hit Deuteronomy 5, and what's Deuteronomy 5? The Ten Commandments. Why follow the Ten Commandments? Look at what the Lord has done before. Why do you live a righteous life? Because look what He's done on your behalf when you didn't even deserve it. You remember. You remember His love. Remember his benevolence. Such redemptive history is built into the covenant mindset. And in the best cases, in the best of the cases that we find in the Bible, this kind of infects the mind like a virus. Remember what the Lord has done so that you can have faith and confidence in what he'll do in the future. We see it in the picture of young David running out to the battlefield to face Goliath. He's got no reason to believe he'll have the victory. Here's, a, here's a, an expert warrior, great, out, outside, better than him in strength, in experience, in prowess, in weaponry. And yet what does David do? He's, he's depicted as running out to the battlefield while, while the, the, uh, the impotent King Saul stays in his tent kind of you know, polishing his silver and polishing his, his mail and his armor. You have young David running out with just a staff and a slingshot. But what does he do? What does he say? He says, I remember how the Lord protected me from those lions and bears when I was tending to my flock. If he's protected me from them, he can protect me from this Philistine. What strength does he have? And in doing so, David shows that he is the kind of king who is after the heart of God. He is the covenantally faithful king who will take the place of Saul and establish the monarchy in Israel. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, in this. What, what, are, what are your lion and bear stories? What are the victories that the Lord has given you? Yes, is it Christ Jesus on the cross? Absolutely. But I would also encourage you to think, how has that worked out in your life? Has he reordered your desires? Has he given you power over your addictions? Has he given you the desire to struggle and to have power over your addictions? Has he drawn you to him and to his glory? Has he brought you into this space to worship him in a way that goes against everything the world would tell you? You're now here worshiping the name of Jesus Christ. That's a lion and bear story. He's given you the victory in the past so that you can be confident about the future. Later in Israelites' history, as the precipice of national exile drew near, the whole of the biblical prophets evolved into one of, the role of the biblical prophets evolved into one of accountability, calling the leadership and the people to remember the promises that God had made to them and the demands that he made on them. Promises to show mercy, 
and demands to show justice. I'd actually say one of the jobs of the prophet is to serve as a covenant reminder. That's his job. Be a covenant reminder. Think of Huldah reminding the people in the Old Testament of what, uh, of, of what Deuteronomy requires of them. And as she's speaking these words, Josiah the king says, Lord, have mercy, because she's reminding them of what the Lord has required of them. Think of Anna in the temple as the Christ child is brought. And she says, here he is. Like Simeon also alongside her saying, look, here he is, the light of revelation to the Gentiles. Remember that? Remember that prophecy? Prophets are called to be reminders. I find the best memory, the reminding here, an exemplary passage in Isaiah 40, verse 28, where Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, of course, they had known. They know about this. They just don't acknowledge it. And he's coming to them saying, don't you know? Don't you remember? They don't acknowledge it. They had forgotten it. They had fallen into a kind of selective amnesia. that The exile would prove to be a powerful corrective. We have to ask ourselves that as well, don't we? How do we choose to forget? How do we have selective amnesia about our tradition? How do we have selective amnesia about our people? How do we have selective amnesia about our own autobiographies where we forget those inconvenient truths that the Lord calls us to remember, just like we saw in Psalm 78. Remember so you don't do them again. So I want to start with that. Psalm 78 shows us remembering is a covenantal reality. We remember the covenants. We remember what God has required of us. But it's not merely that. It's also a remembering of the apostolic faith, the apostolic message. Now, the New Testament is often presented to us as kind of the Christian Bible, right? The Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. And the New Testament is the Christian Bible. But let me, let me argue for something a little bit different here. If you've been going to Grace downtown, you know this is the case. But let me, let me make a little bit of an argument here. The New Testament is not the Christian Bible against the Old Testament that is the Jewish Bible. The New Testament is a Christian remembrance of the Old Testament in light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me even argue this. If someone says, what is Christianity? You can say, okay, it's not the the only definition, but this is one good definition. Christianity is Old Testament religion understood in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How else do we explain the fact that the apostles are constantly saying, and that was to fulfill, and that was to fulfill, and that was to fulfill, and that was to fulfill. And that's why Isaiah said this, and that's why Moses said this, and Hosea said this. That's why they say these things. Why? Because we're reading the prophets, we're reading the law, we're reading the Psalms in light of Messiah. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he sends us out as his people, Yahweh worshipers, out into the world to proclaim the second person of the Trinity. That is Messiah. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because we are recipients of the word of God, we're called by the apostles to remember God's mighty works of 
creation and redemption as revealed to us through the course of redemptive history, culminating in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Every time we proclaim Jesus as Messiah, every time we talk about how he's our high priest, as we, as we read earlier, every time that we, we think about him as the great vine, that is Israel, Right? Every time we call him uh, the bread of life, the water of life, the temple itself, every time we're doing that, we are remembering Old Testament religion in light of apostolic faith and commitments. You could call that an apostolic covenantal remembering. Now, to be sure, we have a multitude of distractions that compete for our uh, our, our affections and our attentions and our memory. Distractions that would confuse our knowledge. Distractions that would confuse our understanding of the Lord of our salvation. And that's why we must nurture our knowledge of the Lord through corporate and individual remembering. That's why it's so crucial for us to remember that we be- what we believe about God and His designs for us as we gather together, as we do in this act of corporate remembering, on Sunday nights in downtown Washington, D.C. Coming together to remember together. One way we do this is by singing hymns that have been sung throughout history and are sung throughout the world today. Sometimes we do this by reciting creeds and confessions like uh, you know, the, the Apostles' Creed where we come together and we say, what do we believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty. We say it with the communion of saints throughout all of history. Or when we sing, as we will later this evening, the doxology, this old ancient hymn that emerges out of the fog of history in the Christian world and something that we've been singing for centuries. Why do we do it? Because we're remembering together. We're remembering together. Similarly, as a covenant people, when we receive the word from the pulpit with hearts that are inclined in a way to lead to worship, that leads to worship, we are doing apostolic covenantal remembering. Corporate memory also finds expression in the other means of grace, that is, sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the former, when we gather together and we baptize little babies, we're reminding ourselves that we are a part of this group. When we baptize new adult believers, we're reminding ourselves what this thing is that we've committed ourselves to and who we're committed to and why we're committed to one another. It's an act of remembering. In the case of the Lord's Supper, it comes to us very obviously, lest we miss the point. Jesus, when he does it, says what? Do this in remembrance of me. This is to say, remember the apostolic covenant. Remember the covenant with me. And finally, let us not forget the critical covenant remembering that occurs in our personal day-to-day practice of meditating on God's word and applying it into our lives, into the lives of those around us. That's one way that we remember together when we encourage one another in the word. In this way, human consciousness becomes shaped by the story of salvation so that believers, individual believers, begin to understand their own biographies as part of the history of the covenant people of God. So we remember the covenants. We remember the apostolic faith. But now we'll end with this. As we're remembering forward, we remember the future. 
Covenant memory is, ne- memory is never just about recollecting, about just going back and kind of reciting facts so that we can make sure that we've got the history right or something like that. It's never just about that. We don't dwell on a supposed golden, golden age. We're not repristinating the past. We're not venerating the tradition as somehow above and beyond us and what we're doing today, but we recognize that our memory uh, reflects a stance in life It's a stance in life towards one's past and one's present, and ultimately, as with young David, who hadn't yet conquered Goliath, right? As with young David, our stance towards our past will influence and form our stance towards the future. God's good pleasure, he chose to reveal elements of his redemptive plan for human history. We've procured through the scriptures that image of new creation that we talked about last fall, that image of our imperishable bodies that await us that we still can't even wrap our minds around. How am I going to live without sin and without dying and without, I mean, how's this going to happen? I can't imagine that world. And yet I know it exists. God in his good pleasure has told me of it. He's told me about the truly just and equitable society that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. He's told me about the unmediated communion with God that we will have in Christ. This knowledge is rehearsed over and over again in the heart of every believer because it's a remembered future. It draws us forward in a salvation that is at once accomplished and applied and awaiting fulfillment in the world around us. As we come to the Lord's table after this sermon, notice the remembering the future that we find right there, right? Does it say, every time you do this, you proclaim his death, remembering, right, until he comes again. We're remembering for the sake of the future. See, in the Bible, memory is an act of faithfulness to God. It's an appraisal of the past that understands history for what it is, the outworking of God's providence in the world. Such a stance has a way of transforming how we understand the rest of our lives. If history is an outworking of God's providence in our lives, we cannot help but begin to see our present and our future in the same way as part of the redemptive plan that God is accomplishing in this world. Jesus Christ, his Son, and our Lord, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time of remembering. I pray now as we come together and we put our memory to the test, that we sit down and we discern the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper, Lord. I pray that you would prepare our hearts even now to do it in a spirit of repentance, in a spirit of redemptive remembering, and in a spirit of hope for what you have accomplished and will accomplish in this world. We lift this time to you, dear Jesus, that it would be to your glory and to our benefit.